rather than seeing a person as like one of the 15 calls I have today. So my motive is to take you to the next call. And if you ask me about pricing, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to freak out. So I'm going to just get you to sign an NDA and then sign a contract. Then four meetings in, maybe you'll just buy out of inertia because you're like, I I can't (laughs) be bothered to do this whole song and dance again with someone else like that. That's not the way forward. And and I think some of the best sellers that I've met um, in this industry and others and a lot of the folks that we've spent solid time with in building quality understand that and they really mm-hmm. value true relationship capital. Um, it's the, the biggest mark of respect you can you can give someone is not wasting their time, especially at work. <laughs> Bingo. Welcome back to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks, the cybersecurity podcast that tackles the vendor-customer relationship. I'm George K with the vendor side. And I'm George A., Chief Information Security Officer. And today, our guest is Victoria Germanova, founder and CEO of Quality. Vika, welcome to Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, so we'll just start where we usually do. Um, Just give us the quick and dirty about how you got to where you are today. Sure. Um, It's been a very roundabout journey. I was born in Russia, moved to the UK as a kid, went to college uh, over there at Cambridge as an English major, somehow fell straight into management consulting because they were doing a very good job hiring from those schools at that time. Um, Spent a couple of years getting my business head sort of put on my shoulders, the basics of how commerce and enterprises operate, uh, and then decided to start a new adventure. I applied for Stanford Business School, got in on some kind of wish and a prayer, um, <laughs> quit my job, went to manage a technical accelerator in Moscow for a VC fund that operates in Silicon Valley, and discovered that innovation in a startup and bureaucracy in an enterprise are is an crazy combination of things to put together especially Mm -hmm. when you're bringing sort of western ideals and innovations into these sort of eastern bloc soviet bloc um oligarchies basically very interesting work um learned a lot about startups and, and and why started feeling myself getting drawn in that direction came to business school covid hit uh about two quarters in Everything went online. I took off for a year uh, to work a bit more and figure out next steps. Went to Salesforce, was in an awesome team there with a couple of uh, the leaders now of the customer uh, success organization. Uh, We were in charge of customer support, so 4,000 engineers. I was uh, lucky to be in a sort of chief of staff position supporting uh, a bunch of different initiatives, including getting vendors uh, into our organization faster. So. Mm cutting around some of the procurement um, hoops to jump through and finding faster ways to bring innovation and best-in-class products into our operations um, through that way. And yeah, just felt how painful and annoying it is to deal with salespeople. So then obviously (laughs) the next logical step was to become a salesperson myself, uh, figure out uh, why this job was pulling in all this amazing talent and, and, and yet, you know, has such a bad mantle to it and a bad mm-hmm. reputation. I became director of sales at a startup selling into Salesforce and uh, and my job was to generate new business outside of uh, that relationship. And wow, yeah, cold outreach. It was a humbling 
character defining <laughs> experience. I realized no amount of smart schools or carefully worded content will get you much beyond 4% conversion to a meeting. Mm -hmm. And that felt egregiously bad. So that was the problem that I came back into Stanford with, um, with curiosity around having worked in a very early stage startup, realized that the CEO role is one that is just the job. Fundamentally, you don't have to be a Mark Zuckerberg. I don't know, mm -hmm. godlike 180 IQ figure to, to do it. And and started working on on quality and a solution to this problem that I encountered, sales and buying and B two B enterprise that felt just so outdated and arcane. Okay, yeah, there's a lot to dig into, and we're we're going to do that. Um, you kind of straddle the vendor customer divide, but we're going to call you vendorish for the sake of today because that means okay. the CISO gets first crack in the ring. So over <laughs> to you, George A. Well, <laughs> this is a lot friendlier so everyone knows we had a pre-conversation it's like Vic is a very like down-to-earth person so thank you for joining us for on. This. I'm, watching. I'm happy to happy to take the heat appreciate you <laughs> apparently my, my headphones don't um in your journey from management consultant to silicon valley founder you had mentioned uh in previous conversations that you know, your graduate school training combined with lived working industry experience had led you to see a business opportunity that was attainable enough to solve, uh, but large enough to scale into an enterprise. In a highly competitive program like Stanford's, what convinced you that your idea, which, you know, would soon later turn into quality, how did you convince that that idea could become something a lot bigger than anything many of your classmates were also chasing, but had nowhere near the potential for scale. Mm. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'll say a lot of my classmates are working on very exciting things, probably going to create the Facebooks and Apples of, you know, our future. So I don't know that mine is better than, than everyone else's, but it definitely took a turn for me. I had to come around this corner and realize you know, it's worth spending my entire life on or like my, all my waking hours as it has been for the last year or so. Uh, and that, that point came about while I was just finishing off my degree. Um, we, we took quality through an accelerator class called startup garage. And so many people were working on really great ideas in the beginning, ones that were easier to explain, ones that didn't feel so like unsexy, you know, mm -hmm. consumer things, space things, uh, women's health things, all this these interesting ideas. And, and I saw one by one, the majority of my classmates discovered through the course of the accelerator, through deep customer listening and research and prototyping, that they actually, the problem wasn't that big, or they had like mm. built a solution in or were thinking about a solution that wasn't solving something that people really cared about, or the ICP was off, or they couldn't get enough conviction and, and sort of dropping out and changing, pivoting, or just giving up. That never happened for us. The more we pressed on this, pain the deeper we dug our nails into it the more we heard yes this is broken yes this has been this way forever yes we need to change it and with quality and in cybersecurity in particular it was trippy as hell to listen to podcasts like this one where we'd have CISOs and vendors talking about this problem and and they would start talking up quality they would talk about like if only there was a better way to meet vendors if only there was a way to go shopping without having to talk to them initially 
um, without revealing my identity, if there was a Tinder, if I could just get the best three recommendations, <laughs> I need something. And I was sitting in my chair like, yeah, yes, you, that can happen. That should happen. And, you know, your custom, these customers, these future customers of ours became, um, you know, they, they were architecting exactly what we were working on. That was that was the point at which I said, okay, this 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 has to happen, and and I feel I feel well equipped to bring it to the world. Yeah. So you mentioned your time in the trenches. You mentioned the cold calling pain that every person in sales or on a vendor side has tried to pull the levers. Okay, what can I twist here? What can I change there? What can I A/B test here just to get a higher open rate, response rate, whatever? Right. So. The sum of that experience, if you could, I think we all kind of have a sense of what quote unquote feels broken in terms of the trust or the relationship, but just give us your take on like, what is the foundational issue in your mind with B2B sales that you're looking to solve? Yeah, this is a great question. When I think about it a lot, um, because I see it as a, a de- dependency inversion problem, right? It's it's if you, on the one side, you have buyers who theoretically are motivated, right, to to mm-hmm. find the right vendor to be sold to the right product and to spend money on that product. Um, the shoppers, right? And on the other hand, you have on the other side, you have the vendors, which at a high level you, you'd think would be like also. Um, incentivized to find the right buyers to spend money in the right parts of their marketing Mm -hmm. uh, universe or spend time at the right events and not bother with buyers who aren't worth their time. Right. And and that it seems like it should make sense, but what's happened over the last probably couple of decades or or certainly the last decade is um, that communication, that straightforwardness has been, skewed and sort of taken away by just the proliferation of products out there. The fact Mm -hmm. that back in LinkedIn's early days, cold outreach was actually not insane, right? You would take a message from a stranger. You would be a bit more willing to trust them. But these days it's like 30 of these messages are coming your way. And half of them are probably written by a bot. Half Mm -hmm. of the companies in YC right now, if not more, are generational AI and the largest use case for generational AI in Y Combinator, which is the famous startup accelerator yep. here in the Valley, is sales. And I'm like, why stop putting money into this? <laughs> like, you, you all are just assuming that the, the 3% conversion rate, which for some reason is good enough, right? And that, that proves how mm-hmm. hard it is to find your buyers these days in this really crowded space with a lot of sales and marketing kind of nonsense floating out there. The fact that 3% is good enough tells you that it's broken. The fact that people still spend money on all these um, sales bots and SDRs and and marketing events. Um, But yeah, that tap is not going to be turned off. It's been turned Mm -hmm. on even more by the recent developments in GPT-3. And I am at this, at once I am horrified because I hate, I I, I live with for my buyers and I feel like I, I, I feel how annoying it is for them. But at the same time, I'm like, okay, this is a tailwind because for us, it means that that response rate is going to go down and down and down. So there's going to be real pressure on vendors to find better ways to spend that that budget. Um, and by by working with the leaders of sales orgs, we bypass this kind of volume problem of the, 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 the folks in the trenches who are just being motivated by either meetings in the diary or quota, 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 right? They're not, yep. they're kind yeah, of yeah. 
they're not incented to be strategic necessarily about their spend. Yeah, I think, you know, if I had to armchair philosophize about it, I mean, we're talking, you know, door to door machine sales, like I was selling photocopiers or fax machines, and we just sort of translated that model when we had our SaaS revolution somewhere in like 2010. And then that was just inertia. And then, as you said, we just layered more automation on it, thinking that if we could just amp the volume, you know, at the top of the funnel, like that conversion rate, 3%, you know, come hell or high water was still going to get us more numbers at the at the yeah. bottom. But yes, to your point. Yeah, back over to you, George. A. Yeah, no, I think you guys are like, Mika, you're bang on the point. Like, uh, the thing that we really stress on here with this show is creating authentic connections to actually solve client problems with your solutions or your services. Um, when we get into the spray and pray model of you know business development, cold opens, uh, I think it really degrades the quality of the business, both in terms of the service delivery side and in terms of the quality of sales personnel who are coming up the ranks. Um, I mean, really, it's it's a it's an anti call center approach, basically, uh, as we talked about. And it's interesting because it kind of leads into my kind of next question to you. Like, given that your technology has applications for business far and away, you know, beyond just the cyber sector, and given the cash crunch of our current economy, particularly in our sector, what makes you think that, you know, future buyer side clients in the InfoSec space will at scale buy into Quality's MVP? Like, how do you bridge that experience gap? while trying to facilitate highly technical sales between second and third parties as, and I say this purely in the cybersecurity sense, as a non-technical business leader that you are, purely in the sense that you're not like a hacker mm-hmm. who's been working in a sock your entire career. How do oh, you do I'll take that. That's fair. I'm an English major turned consultant, turned seller, turned strategist, <laughs> turned CEO apparently. Um, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, I guess I'll take the, sec- the, the second part of the question um, first. It's it's not that we've built some insane technology that's just going to lift this problem away, right? Like there are mm-hmm. startups that, that start with the tech uh, and then apply it and build the product, technical product first and then apply it. We're not actually in that category. Um, what we've realized is that this... Uh, this problem can only be solved with a combination of technical and strategic sort of um, directions or levers. And what I mean by that is the te- the the only way to solve this scalably um, is by creating trust within a given industry, by having both sides buy in. It's not eBay. It's not like, you know, Airbnb only works because we all have decided that probably Airbnb hosts aren't murderers. Hinge only works because we've all decided that probably it's okay if we meet someone we haven't seen in real life before for a drink outside, right? These consumer marketplaces that we take as, as our starting point for in terms of inspiration for UX actually all foundationally are built on trust. So without trust, you're not going to get anywhere. And so that's why we focus on cybersecurity. I was... I watched Mr. Robot before, but I, I didn't have any specific <laughs> allegiance to the space until getting him, our teeth into quality, the business model, and and, and talking to a, an array of buyers across different industries. Cybersecurity is, is the one where the signals were strongest, the pain is deepest, the vendor-to-buyer ratio is, is so <laughs> huge. 
Um, and it's also macro resistant, relatively speaking, pocket of spend. So as a business leader, it's one that I feel more comfortable spending time on during an economic downturn, right? The threats just keep evolving. They keep coming and you can't stop buying security. Like you, you, you can't, you might, you may want to consolidate your spend into fewer vendors, or you may want you, your budget might freeze, but you're not going to be reducing it at the pace that we're seeing in other industries. Um, and so by starting with one industry, by working, by building a product that CISOs are asking for and want, we've established trust with a few influential, smart, mm -hmm. you know, relatively high profile CISOs in the space. And, and that, that, that's where the, that's how this whole thing sort of began. That's where the, 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 my conviction began, you know, the first time we ever ran like a call out for a buyer, there was no tech. There was zero tech. It was an Excel sheet. I didn't have a team. I went to a conference mm -hmm. with like a shopping list of features that this, this, the CISO of this bank wanted for a bot protection tool. I didn't understand that how what he was talking about, <laughs> but as a seller, I was able to understand that of all the things he was looking for and all the criteria he had for choosing a vendor, only like 20% was super duper technical and like required that technical sound mm -hmm. engineer to be on the call, et cetera. A lot of them were things like, does this vendor solve this need? Will they impact these KPIs in the right direction? Do they have experience with multinational banks like us? Um, what's their pricing? Does it fall into inside my budget? Will they integrate? Will they work in our architecture? Like these are not questions that you need a, a cybersecurity degree to answer. So the fact that cybersecurity professionals have to do that part of the of the process mm. with a seller is just a waste of y'all's valuable time, your technical, smart, smarter than me time. Like you, buyers should not be spending time being sold to by the very early stage, top of funnel, you know, less technical salespeople. They should be able to jump straight into that demo call with the right vendors and the right engineers on the call. And that's what we're lifting away. So that's, and, and, and that's not, that's not that, technical of a challenge in itself how we're using technology to build a business out of it is like the, the tech just unlocks scale right it stops us being yeah. a consulting business where we're just brokering like a traditional brokerage it creates something that looks and feels like airbnb um and lets this happen at scale through using the vendor insights that we're collecting storing it in a smart way querying it in a smart way and automating that matching process so that the economies of scale are very high. So, so, so that's kind of the the secret, right? That that's that's the reason why I've so, so wound you, up. You ultimately like you focused really on the problem and not so much the tech. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's we we found the problem. We actually call it TV one was a very different product. Uh, it was called Sales Pack. The logo was a wolf's head inspired by my husky, <laughs> and it was supposed to incentivize. SDRs and junior salespeople to like trade information about buyers because when you're on a call with a buyer, you often find out like, oh, you know, th they don't need this thing, but they do have a pain over here. And, and I was trying to like commercialize that. And it sounds really stupid now, but at the time it felt like it was absolutely the right approach. But no, that's that's brilliant. That's literally just it's intelligence gathering, right? Because you're listening to yeah. a conversation, yeah. seeing what secondary information they provide you. It might not be useful for the primary purpose of the call. But you might have friends that are selling the other things they mentioned. I think that's brilliant. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a red awareness. hot, very live piece of information. And I think that's kind of, as you'll see, both from that version of the idea and, and, and what we're doing now, it's like a systems thinking that I'm applying in a way. It's like, okay, there's this process happening anyway. How can we extract more value from it? 
Then we realized SDRs don't have any budget, don't have any time, and are really hard to motivate to do things that aren't just helping them get meetings. So it was a little hard to figure out the GTM for that, which is why we said, okay, well, what happens if we control the conversation? What if we're not just using the conversations already happening, we're just controlling the conversation with the buyers, and then we're deploying it in the most effective way possible um, and, 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 get, and shortening that time between buyers saying, I have a need, and the right vendors being engaged. That's that's been the mindset and the and the thinking throughout. Yeah, I mean that that is this human element that is has been downgraded through automation, and I think has led to breach of trust. I really was looking at your face, George, when she was like, "This is the industry that had the lowest trust and the most pain." <laughs> <So I was laughs> like, oh, brother's face was telling the story right there. Um, so I I dig what you're saying about you know, the incentive structure is part of the problem, right? So I don't, I don't really care about finding out more about these people because I got to get through these numbers. I got to get through this yeah. call sheet. I got to get, you know, whatever. So um, something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast and something that I'm keen to get your insight on after this uh, market research is, you know, what's your take on the idea that a lot of this adverse behavior and these rather counterproductive metrics might be the result of you know, short-term thinking that is leveraged to satisfy unreal, unrealistic sales targets that, you know, some of that mm -hmm. may be influenced by kind of VC funding model. Some of that mm -hmm. is um, incentivized through other structures, but it's that short-term, like hit this number, hit this number, hit this number. So just want your take on that, that human motivation or that incentive structure and the larger macro pressure that, that might yeah. be bringing to bear. It's it, yeah, that's, it's a really great question because I hear so many in the trenches salespeople talking about that, right? Like this mm -hmm. doesn't feel realistic. Why do you have to, why do you guys feel like the horse is being whipped the hardest, right? By management with goals that probably you're like, surely management, no, we're not going to hit this number. Like, why would you stress <laughs> this all out and giving it to us? But the interesting thing is, you know, I experienced that um, myself in, in, in my, in my time at the startup uh, preceding this one, but I've also looked at it as a leader, right? Like at Stanford, uh, so managing, building and managing sales orgs, one very famous class that I took. And, you know, we've also had a billion case studies of, of, of leaders who spoke about these problems and like, well, I, I owned a sales org and I built a sales org and, and this is why these are the decisions I made and sort of, and why, um, and we've dissected that a lot. And it's, the problem is like, you know, there's a reason why salespeople are paid the most in the organization it's the lever that you can pull really hard mm -hmm. when you need to, um, to drive top line revenue. So it is the, 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 the company is, will be made or broken by the, by the sales team. And much like, you know, a company going public and then being under public scrutiny and therefore having to hit quarterly targets to keep that sentiment of the markets reflecting on a good stock price especially venture-backed companies have these really unrealistic targets that VCs set mm -hmm. when they invest, which is, you know, up and to the right. I've heard that phrase a billion yep. times. Yeah. Like, up <laughs> oh, to the yeah. right, exponential, keep it going. And sales is just the lever that, that drives that more than anything else. Um, and and so, you know, much, uh, yeah, going back to the root problem, like it's, it, it, is it the right culture? Is it the right way of doing sales? Probably not, but is it working? Well, for some companies, it is. I, I really have thoughts on this as a CISO. There are mm -hmm. some companies that have a good idea, but they grow too far, too fast, 
Yes. And it leaves gaps. It mm-hmm. leaves major security vulnerabilities. It leaves major technical gaps. The bug issues are insane. It's impossible to get support from them like in a proper manner because they've scaled up too quickly and they haven't like they might have invested a ton to their sales and marketing organization, but they don't have the back end to support the clients they have. And so I think that ultimately leads them to a potential failure as a result of their own success. Yeah, hostage to fortune, you know, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, build fast and break things, like that's the epon- eponymous sort of motto of a Silicon Valley company. But, you know, I can, we, we were taught and we have spoken to founders who would tell you that is not, that approach means you're going to break things. And that can be very, very, very serious. Like you're basically shooting and hoping for a home run and forgetting the fact that the odds are, if you don't get a home run, like you're out, right? And 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 that can be legally binding. That can set people to jail. Like mm-hmm. Uber CISO, come on, like there's so <laughs> oh, yeah. much that can go wrong when you have that mindset and we we as a society or at least as silicon valley we, we tend to over exaggerate the successes and like you know it was the means to the end let's apply this model and try and find someone like this again but most companies won't be the home run um and yeah i i think it's a there's a real tension between realistic profitable growth that's going to be sustainable and lead a, to a good business that scales and provides jobs for many thousands of people and just getting that dollar, getting that exit as fast as possible at any cost. Fucking cheers yeah. to that. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I think um, I think we're currently living through a very interesting moment where it's possible that the conception that funders and VCs have is wildly orthogonal to where the the buyer ship is heading, right? So I think a lot of that may have had to do with COVID. So before I, I go into the office. And cool, this is where I'm going to do the cold calling. This is where I'm going to get calls, right? I expect I go into the office, I might get that. But now when you're trying to reach people at home and you're, you know, like psychologically that does a lot. Like all the barriers go down. I don't want to get called on my cell phone. And I think this is a very big level of pushback from essentially the entire market of buyers. And I I think we're just currently living through a friction point and we'll see what comes out on the other side. But um, we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and we have finished the bare knuckles brawl. It's down to brass tacks. So stay tuned. Hey, listeners, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and follow our LinkedIn page for updates, including upcoming swag giveaways. Now, back to our conversation with Victoria Germanova. And we're back. So we're down to brass tacks. Vika, marketplace buying is not new either for cyber or B2B SaaS generally. Um, You know, there's AWS marketplace. There are a handful of others. I've I've seen this model before. But as you look to address those fundamental challenges that you were talking about in the first part of the show, you know, how do you think that as we work through these trust issues that the, the role of sales evolves or changes, you know, as we try to, to bridge this trust. Yeah. I, I think that the number one thing, um, the number one thing I find myself stressing to, to sales folks when I'm talking about quality is look, we're not trying to remove, like replace the salesperson. Mm -hmm. There's, there's in a technical industry, like cybersecurity, 
when you're talking about multi hundreds of thousands or million dollar deals, you're not going to get that free PLG. No one's going to put their credit card information mm-hmm. online and just, and just <laughs> right. buy that. Like that doesn't happen. So we're not, it, it's not that we're not trying to replace the the seller and, we, and, and that human touch is going to be the most important thing in sales as since the days of door to door through the future, I'm sure it's about how you're spending um, your sales resources of time as a salesperson, how you spend your mm-hmm. time uh, with which buyers do you spend your time? And as a sales leader, how do you, how do you spend your money? Right. How do you allocate roles to people? How, how many people do you hire, et cetera. Um, and right now that that is broken. Like there is no actual reason that a salesperson's career has to start with 500 cold outreach calls, you know, per mm-hmm. week or whatever. And this very hamster in a wheel kind of um, trial by fire um, sort of approach, which is which is what's happening now. Because and and you know, does it does it build effective sales muscles? Yeah, but look at the impact that has on the buy side. Look at the, the the ways that you ruin your own brand and the way that you just ruin people's days even when you call them <laughs> up and pitch yourself and pitch your shit. Like that's it's just not it's not where we should be sending out our college bright, smart college grads is into one of these SDR programs. That, that's not how it should be. So the role of the salesperson, I think, is should, and and, and I hope that we're, we're encouraging the movement towards this, but it should be going the direction of, you know, humanity back to, rather than seeing a person as like one of the 15 calls I have today. So my yep. motive is to take you to the next call. And if you ask me about pricing, I'm not going to tell you because I don't want you to freak out. So I'm going to just get you to sign an NDA and then sign a contract. And then four meetings in, maybe you'll just buy out of inertia because you're like, I, I can't be bothered to do this whole song and dance again with someone else. Like that, that's not the way forward. And and I think some of the best sellers that I've met um, in this industry and others, and a lot of the folks that we've spent solid time with in building quality understand that. And they really mm-hmm. value true relationship capital. Um, it's the, the biggest mark of respect you can, you can give someone is not wasting their time, especially at work, <laughs> Bingo. Uh, but in relationships and in, in life as well. Right. And, and I think that's the fundamental principle that we're trying to work on. And I think a good seller understands that we'll, we'll shorten the call if they've run out of the agenda, right. We'll show up on time. We'll not reschedule. We'll ask, spend the, those calls asking questions and answering questions truthfully rather than any kind of weird other motive, um, like just getting the next call in the books. Yeah. Cool. You know, it's funny, ever since, like, like you mentioned, um, kind of like your last sponsor a few minutes back, just talking about the amount of calls, the obsessive calls. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at just the number of calls I get. G- gross, dude. Yeah. Gross. These are all just sales calls that I ignore. And that's 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 literally just for April. Right? They're flooding my phone. Holy hell, man. <laughs> yeah, bro. <laughs> so the worst thing is when you're actually expecting an important call from an unknown number. <laughs> so then for like a day or two, you just have to start picking them up. And it's like oh, yeah. just a bunch of little yeah. arrows <laughs> being thrown in your back until finally you're like, you know, I, I can understand people losing them, losing their shit at salespeople because it's like, it's not personal. It's just, you're the 40th person to yeah. start forward. Well, not only that, there's, there's a human cost to being that angry, right? You're like, just yeah. carrying, you're just like twisted up like a spring ready to just pop. So, yeah. So on a, on a positive empowering note, <clears throat> you are, a female founder and a CEO with a new technology. 
and you're pushing for a massive pivot in how supplier side business is done. Like kudos to you. It's incredible. I'm, I really have just enjoyed getting to know you and the narrative. How have you earned the respect of your peers and solidified your place at the table? Ooh, spicy one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just a lot of assets. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Um, cause it, yeah, because all of our first clients, a lot of them work actually from cold outreach <laughs> or from me finding people at conferences and just bothering them a lot, basically. So it's kind of ironic because I, I had to sort of do the thing. Start that somewhere. I'm trying, yeah, I had, I had to start somewhere and, and do the thing that I'm trying to destroy, basically, <laughs> um, to start things out. And I mean, this is... It, it, I hope it's not a cop out, but it's like, it's the truth. It's, it's listening, right? Everyone wants someone to, to hear them and to listen to their problems and to, and whether they need to look at you as like a, a student, young professional, who's just trying to figure something out. And like, that helps them open mm. that door and have that call with you. Sometimes it was like that. Sometimes it's just, you know, actually asking the, like open uh, the cold open being one that addresses a problem that the odds are you do have and, and and just sharing empathy with that and saying, Hey, can we talk about it a little bit? Um, being upfront and, and not, not transactional, but also not like pretending that this is not a pitch, right? Like that, mm-hmm. that's, that, that's take, taken me a pretty long way. Um, as, uh, as George and I say, acknowledging the dance. You gotta acknowledge the dance, yeah. right? I'm like, here don't, for this reason. <laughs> don't say you want to connect and, and and help each other out. Like that's not right. That's not true. Maybe we'll do that. Maybe we will end up helping each other out. But like, no, just say like, hey, I'm a founder. I have a product. I I think it's solving something really big that I think you're experiencing. Am I right? Like, let's talk about it. And maybe it's just lucky that we do. Well, not lucky, but int- intentional that we have we are solving a real problem. But you know, if if your cold average isn't working. Maybe the product doesn't actually help <laughs> solve something important, or you're Ooh, not you're not articulating yeah. it correctly. Um, yeah, it's just been a lot of a lot of a lot of at bats, a lot of effort, and a lot of um, character building stuff. I'd say, yeah, I've become a lot more humble. <laughs> Definitely. Good answer. That's good. All right, so um, we talked about how sales would evolve or change i guess we were talking about the the uh, role of the particular seller but i want to go a little bit higher up the food chain so you mentioned talking with heads of sales so let's say you know you got a room full of cro's um and they're willing to listen want to hear you talk through kind of your ideal sales methodology like what's your vision for that Mm. yeah i mean it really depends what they're selling for a start like there's so much difference in terms of even within cybersecurity on like how you should go to market. So abstracting that piece of it away. Um, I mean, I would encourage them to, to think about ROI more than anything else, because in marketing and in sales, especially ROI numbers are a pretty shocking return on investment. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the amount of millions of dollars that get poured into fancy conference booths, steak dinners, golf course, opportunities for potential buyers like so much money goes into that and going back to your point earlier around sort of myopia and like short-term thinking I think a lot of the industry has just become really resilient to or 
has stopped noticing that this is actually a pretty bad situation, right? Mm-hmm. Being 1% better when your baseline is 4%, like that's, that's argue, arguably we should be diving out and thinking bigger picture about all of our sales and marketing spend and um, whether paying $15,000 to acquire a customer makes sense if your, if your product is, you know, 50K or whatever it is. Um, so my, you know, pitching quality, but also more generally sort of advisory position for CROs in this space is um, find ways that to reach buyers that don't antagonize them, align yourself with organizations that are trying to bring about meaningful change. The podcasts like this one, like Audience mm-hmm. First, um, the nonprofit, uh, the like educational, bringing more women into cybersecurity. The, there are so many organizations that actually do a lot of good stuff without without being just a pay-to-play or, you know, predatory kind of sales motion where vendors are paying 50K to pitch on a shark tank or whatever. There's so many of these ways to do things. And, I, and a lot of the sellers I know that are awesome do spend time giving back. And, and that's how you meet other people in the community who become real friends. And then that is the best referral you can have. That is the best organic sort of motion. So not saying that all that's what, that, that would help an entire, like a whole sales team should change their strategy into, into that. But just thinking about things less short term and thinking more about the, um, the what creative ways to engage buyers that doesn't involve these unhealthy tactics. I mean, that's, that's the best. Yeah. I dig that. I dig the idea that like your primary motivation should be, what can I do to enable my sales team to build more relationships rather than what sword do I hang over their head for them to hit, you know, arbitrary outreach metrics. Cold outreach and bringing new business in is the hardest part of a sales team's job. But once you've brought that new business in, I mean, you know, upsell, cross-sell, retain, like there's so many ways to generate revenue um, from that one buyer, that buyer referring, you doing a good job for that buyer and then referring to their friends. Bingo. I've, I've said this before. I feel like if you're so focused on new logo acquisition and to Georgia, your point, like you can lose track of the ones you do have. And then you have a lot mm-hmm. of churn, which is super expensive because then you got to go back and do cold outreach to replace, you know, and then that's just a losing proposition long term. Yeah. Like I, any, any sales individual who is insane enough to listen to me for coaching or guidance, um, I try to tell <laughs> them like play for the renewal, even if it's a cold oh. approach. Play for the renewal, not nice. for the initial sale. I dig that. Because, well, like, look, I can tell you from lived experience, if I have an immediate need and someone's down my throat, and let's say their solution can actually address it, and it's a tick in the box thing, and it'll make a problem go away from me for like a year or a couple quarters, I'll sign off on it, but I'll spend the rest of my year planning to replace them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? So, like, you don't you don't want to be that vendor. You want to be the yeah. guys where it's like. I'm looking forward to renewal time because it's like, oh, cool. Maybe we'll get together and have a nice dinner. I'm wondering how their family's doing. Man, I wonder about that thing. Like, like you said, there's yeah. a real relationship because they've sold me. I think that's really what it comes down to. Yeah. And then those buyers would be, I mean, those sellers might get caught on their heels and they'll be like, I don't know why they're not renewing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, going back to your your little scenario of like advising CROs, I think one of the big problems that um, unfortunately exists in sales from like a a team structure or perspective is the separation of the the hunters from like the farmers and the account managers, right? The the, the yeah. person who 
butters you up and gets you to sign the deal tends to like fucking disappear after that. Yeah, there's <laughs> and, peace when the, when the ink is dry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I, I think we'd go, we'd do a lot better if, if that point of contact was still tied to the renewal and uh, still the relationship manager beyond that initial sign. I really like that. Hunters and farmers. I really mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I was, so I want to ask you this because this is like a, a big thing. It came up in our conversation before and I need to know because this is going to help out everyone, seller side, client side, whatever it is. We all go through this. What do you do when you feel like nothing's going right and the dream starts feeling like it's actually impossible to attain? Oh my God. <laughs> I was there on Monday. <laughs> I was like, it's audio only, but if anyone could see Vika's face, it was, it was, a, it was a picture of a founder. <laughs> that prep call is all intelligence gathering. Just know that. <laughs> I was exactly there on Monday of this week. <laughs> um, it, yeah, man, the roller coaster is, is insane. I... Yeah, I've, I've developed some resilience tactics on this. Um, in this case, when 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 the, the future seems so bleak and so dark, it actually helps to go myopic and to think about the day ahead. Maybe even like mm. just the morning, right? Like how am I going to get through the next few hours working towards the ambition, but just focusing on just the execution of, of those tasks? rather than letting yourself get dragged into this spiral of but why am i sending this outreach do am i gonna have a product next year am i gonna raise any money am i gonna be able to deliver like just th- that spiral is the death spiral um yeah so catastrophizing i believe it's called yeah yeah um so when i've wanted to just completely give up and and yeah it does happen uh i just try and reel everything in and ground into like the the next few hours and like medit honestly like classic California person thing to say, but like meditation and mindfulness and all that stuff really helps with that as well. Just grounding and rooting in the moment. But, um, you know, more kind of practically just focusing on how can you get through to the end of the working day, still moving, making some progress against your overall goals and, and being productive and just, just isolate that. Cause Time heals all wounds and, and it will feel better in the morning after you've, you know, done the day, didn't waste it, worked out, eaten a decent meal, had some wine or a good nine hours of sleep, one or the other. <laughs> um, and then and then move forward. It, it's so basically, it's impossible to treat your prospects like human beings if you're not treating yourself like a human being. Ooh, yes. Brought it That's, home. Mm-hmm. and that's again that's true in work and life right you know people always say like you're not gonna you're not gonna find someone that will love you unless you love yourself yeah that's, yeah it's the and same i mean you said it yeah and you, you said it earlier you take the the bright young mind out of college and just throw them in the in the wood chipper and then wonder like why they want to burn out or you know yeah yeah i think sales people might be responsible for the current adderall and xanax crises to be honest <laughs> More than mm. anyone else. <laughs> this statement has not been evaluated by the fda um, <laughs> <laughs> well vika that is uh that's it for time but thank you so much for taking the time out of your weekend to record with us and uh we look forward to meeting in real life yes so soon i'm excited about that too that's it for Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks this week. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a rating or a review. 
and share on all your socials. It helps others find the show. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.